Pop Syzygy, episode 47, The Milky Way Explodes. And welcome back for another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. My name's Chris Stewart. Opposite me here at the table, Emily Brunsden, as ever. Hey, Emily. Hello, hello. It's been a big week. It's been a big week for astronomy and cosmology. Nobel Prizes have been announced. It's so exciting. Yeah, the Physics Nobel Prize got announced earlier this week. Was it Monday or something? It's yep. the first one of the sciences. No, medicine comes first no, yeah. and then physics. Tuesday was physics. Tuesday yeah. was physics. And right up our alley, big time. Astrophysics yep. is winning yep. the Nobel Prizes. Huge, absolutely huge. Who got what? So we got two Nobel Prizes, or well, the same Nobel Prizes jointly shared between two. Yeah, because um, they can groups. award it to up to three people, and they can kind of split that. Um, you know, it can be three people who all worked on the same thing and were equally responsible, at least as much as you can determine. Um, or it can be sort of in in somewhat separate directions, and we give a bit for this person and a bit for this person. So I think they split it down the middle and said half of it goes to this person and the other half goes to these two people yes. for a different thing. Yep. Okay, so who's yep. done what? So the first one, um, the person on their own, if you like, <laughs> was James Peebles. And he got the Nobel Prize for work uh, yeah, he did on theoretical calculations um, of the universe, basically, looking at the history of the evolution of the universe. In particular, he was looking at the cosmic microwave background and the information that we can garner from this amazing observation. Yeah, we talked a lot about that in the past. In fact, we talked about it in the last episode, I think we were talking about yeah. the cosmic microwave background and how it tells us about the energy density of the universe. Yeah, yes. lots of very cool stuff. In and we did a whole episode on it with balloons. We did. Earlier we as did. Well. So Telescopes on a balloon. Go and go and have a look at those episodes if you want to know more about the CMB. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really really exciting. And you know that our understanding of the universe is just crazy advanced yeah. based on these um, observations and theories. So that was worthy. Good. Yes, and the other half very went good. to? The other one went to, I'm, I'm going to say Mikhail Mayer and Didier Coelos. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a really famous one. I mean, I'm so excited about this one because I talk about it all the time. This goes back to 1995. Mm-hmm. What happened in 1995? <sighs> well, given that you're very excited about it and given that it's very relevant to what we often talk about here on the podcast, I'm going to say it's exoplanets it's exoplanets yeah like the first one because if you're going to give a nobel prize it's got surely got to be for something very early on yeah it's the first one around an ordinary star right yeah okay so not the very first one but the very first one that we would look at and go that's a planetary system that we would recognize exactly right yeah yeah Yeah. so this is 51 peg you know b one of the most famous exoplanets still to this day the rock star of exoplanets. Yeah, yeah, our very, very first one. And it's one of these enormous hot Jupiters. And, you know, it, it was a great story as to how these guys... You know, everyone said, you, you can't do it. You just can't... The planets are too small to have any kind of appreciable effect. You're just not going to see anything. And oh, they I'm, went, hold my beer. Look at this. It. Here we are. <laughs> well, well done. Well done all. Hasn't really done terribly much for the, uh, for the gender balance of the, of the Physics Nobel Prizes. No. All the Nobel Prizes in general, to have another three guys up there. Not taking anything away from their work whatsoever, but it's pretty shocking. It is, yeah. You know? Yeah, we do need to do better. We do. We do. Well, when they give us the Nobel Prize for Science Communication and it's an equal sharing between you and me, then that'll help to redress yeah, or, you, or you could just, you know, give all your prize money to me and then that would be even better. We'll discuss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that post-show, okay? So, look, that's the news of the week. That's very exciting. But some other news this week, which is really the meat of the show, is that apparently 
Sometime in the past, the galaxy exploded. Which, you know, news to me. I didn't know about that. Emily, what's going on? When did the galaxy explode? Why did the galaxy explode? Who found out? What? <laughs> yes. So we need to use the word explode a little bit carefully Okay. Here. <laughs> Should we reel that one back <laughs> yeah. in? So effectively what happened was the centre of the galaxy had an enormous energetic flare right. event. Um, this happened about three and a half million years ago. And it left a tracer through some other parts of gas uh, that we can see today. And we've been able to measure that basically rewind the clock backwards and say, hold on a minute, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy is a lot more interesting than maybe we once thought. Which is an interesting statement in itself because, I mean, if you don't find a supermassive black hole interesting, I think there's something wrong with you. But anyway, parking that to the side for a moment. Um, It's not terribly surprising that this did make some headlines because it did. Yes. And all of those headlines were along the lines of, hey, guess what? Our galaxy exploded a couple of billion, a couple of million years ago, which is not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. It's really not. It's really not. Very That's recently. why this is exciting too. It's look naively, and I do say naive things on this podcast from time to time. Naively, I would have thought, given that it was so recent cosmically, how is it that we didn't notice that? Maybe we can come to that a little bit later. First of all, who's done the work? Who are we applauding today? Yeah, so this is work that's been led by uh, Professor Joss Bland Hawthorne from uh, University of Sydney. And um, he's chairing up a project called uh, Astro3D. We're not going to talk about that acronym. (laughs) Yes. Look, well done on the research, Joss, but work harder on the acronym next time. That's all we're going to say. That's all we're going to say. So this is a project which has been looking at um, basically the Magellanic Stream um, in the galaxy. So this is a part of our galaxy which is kind of – it's not part of the ordinary spiral disk that we imagine when we think of our grand spiral Milky Way. It's actually a stream of material that goes, well, I guess up and down don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> but if you imagine space. imagine a, a, your classic spiral galaxy is sort of you know flat and plate shaped, yep. then you can think of it in terms of up and down as being sort of perpendicular to that. So is yeah. that what we're talking about? Sort so of I guess it's above like a, and below that plate? It's below, uh, yeah, it's below the plate and kind of an arch. Right. Magellanic okay. Stream. Yeah. Okay. So they were looking at that and they were able to find traces basically in the stream that signify that we had this enormous flare explosion um, event three and a half million years ago. Very cool. So excellent work. Let's. How do we find our way into this one? Do we need to talk a little bit about uh, the structure of the galaxy? Yeah, let's start with that. All right. Because we, it's helpful to have a like kind of imaginary galaxy in your mind when we're mm-hmm. talking about some where we're finding this information. So we've got a galaxy that's a beautiful grand spiral. We've got a bulge at the centre of the galaxy, which is a bit more spherical. So it's kind of like a ball of more stars and gas um, close to the supermassive black hole. Now, I'm going to use uh, units of light years. Um, they're not going to sound like very large numbers of light years. But just keep in the back of your mind that a light year is a very, very, very large distance. Yes. I mean, by definition, it's how far light can travel in a year. And light goes really, really fast. Yes. Okay. Okay. So using light years, then we live something like 26,000 light years away from the center of the galaxy. See, I'm going to disagree with you. I think that already starts sounding like a very long way. But anyway, all right, 26,000. Yeah, if I put it in meters, though, then it might be a bit more. 26,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. And we're, what, about two-thirds the way out along a spiral arm? That's what Douglas Adams always used to say. Yeah, about two-thirds the way. Well, at least of the visible part of the galaxy. Right. That's that's a whole other question. Sure. So the whole um, disk, if you like. 
like of the galaxy if you went from kind of side to side is something like uh, 150 to 200,000 light years okay. across. Okay. So right. that gives us a sense of scale of the galaxy. Yep. What did you say? A couple of hundred thousand light, light years, years across. Yeah. Cool. And so then the disk itself is quite thin. It, well, it's it's literally called the thin disk. Right. Well, that that would be why it has that name then. Yes. Yeah. So this uh, the thin disk is only 2,000 light years thick. So a couple of hundred thousand wide, 2,000. Yeah. Okay. That's quite thin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I had a bit of fun with this a wee while ago. I was mm-hmm. thinking about pancakes. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of objects in the universe that kind of resemble pancakes. Mm, I think I was quite hungry at the time when I was uh, <laughs> doing this uh, idea. Analogies come to you as your brain is particularly um, switched on in a, in that direction. So pancakes, good. Yeah. So basically, uh, under, and with physics, when you collapse down anything that's spherical whilst it's rotating, then you end up with a disk. Makes sense. Yep. You spin the, it around and the, 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 the spinny type forces squash it down. Yep. Yeah. So that's why we have disks, say, with the rings of Saturn. The solar system is a disk, effectively. Then you have galaxies, which are disks. So there's lots of disks. I mean, even the Earth is a bit squashed, yeah. isn't it? It's a, it's a squashed sphere. Yeah. Oblate spheroid. So all of this angular momentum basically compresses things down to disks. And I was kind of thinking, I wonder what is like, if you if you scale things to the size of pancakes, which mm. would make a delicious pancake out of these objects. <laughs> okay. It's too thick and, you know, it gets a bit gooey and the batter isn't cooked in the middle. And too thin, then, you know, it's not going to absorb all your butter and yeah. uh, I mean, are we talking crepey type pancakes or sort of your American big fluffy styley pancakes? Well, that's what's interesting. You yeah. can to see what, what is what. Okay. Know? And it turns out that if you look at um, the galaxy and mm-hmm. you imagine that scaled down to a pancake. Now, I'm going to be indulgent and say the pancake is the size of a dinner plate. Okay. Because I'm quite hungry. Yeah. Um, if you do that, then your pancake is only about two millimeters thick. Oh, that's very crepey. It's very crepey. Yeah, yeah. So, that's your sort of very delicate crepey, a little bit of lemon and sugar, num, num, num. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good thing to hold in okay. your mind when you think about the galaxy. And that is very thin. It's very thin. Yeah, wow. That's a coin, basically, a very, like a 5p coin in the UK. Oh, that, that is really surprising to me. I, If you'd asked me to draw the galaxy side on, I would have said it was a lot thicker than that. So there we are. The thin go. disc yep. is aptly named. Well done. So that's basically the structure. And now we have this Magellanic stream. Mm-hmm. So the we have these two sort of satellite dwarf galaxies to the Milky Way. The well, Magellanic clouds. We have a few, but yeah, the two very famous ones, Magellanic yeah. clouds. Yeah, there are a bunch, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but the Magellanic Clouds, there's two of them. Yep, and you can see them in the night sky in the Southern Hemisphere. So they're two sort of smudgy things. My very first description of them from a professional astronomer was it looked like someone sneezed on the sky (laughs) over there. Nice. Okay. Yeah, but that works. I have seen them as well, and yeah, that's about right. Yep. So the two clouds are called the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Small Magellanic Cloud. Okay. Not super creative, but Mm -hmm. however. Descriptive, though. Mm. Yeah. So LMC, SMC. Um, so there's this ribbon now there's a Magellanic stream which is basically this ribbon like structure that kind of is like a big tail f- coming out from these galaxies okay. and is this is this stars is it what what is it it's mostly gas okay so it's gas that's been stripped out of these um, galaxies by the gravitational interaction that they have with our enormous Milky Way right because okay. these things are tiny okay. in comparison to us and are these galaxies that we've sort of gobbled up or attracted to in orbit like where have they come from so they've come from elsewhere so Mm -hmm. i've come from elsewhere in the local group basically and we're just in the process of consuming them right okay and so the stream is 
a result of those galaxies interacting with our galaxy and our much, much bigger galaxy, what's sort of stripping them apart? That's yeah, the idea? Yeah, yeah. basically. Okay. Um, and what's quite interesting is uh, last year, actually, there was some new research that came out about what where did this gas come from? Did it come from the LMC or the SMC? Um, and interestingly, most of it comes from the small Magellanic Cloud. Right, okay. All right, so we have our LMC, our SMC, and this this stream, yep. stream of stuff. And so to put that in our um, scale of the Milky Way, the... The stream is about 200,000 light years away. So that's all of the order of the actual size of the galaxy itself. Yeah. 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 So double, if you took a kind of a radius, it's double the radius, if you like, from sure. the center, except it's on the bottom of the galaxy. So it's underneath the dinner plate. If you... Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a huge part of astronomy is looking at the galactic structure generally. And of course, the Astro 3D project is interested in mapping out uh, the three-dimensional structure of these um, things like these streams. There's lots of them, actually. Um, it's really, really cool. So this um, structure actually happens to sort of pass if you like, a below the bottom of the supermassive black hole. Right, okay. So when we had talk about things like these flares, these um, we, we're calling them safer flares because they're similar to how we, what we observe in safer galaxies, which is a whole different type of active galaxy. And um, these um, supermassive black holes, when they have an energetic process like they consume a star or another piece of matter, there's this dipole emission that comes from that. So it means that instead of being um, emission that comes out through the disk or through the equator of the black hole, if you like, which is normally how the material falls in, right. then the material is spewed up in the north and south pole. Right. So when you say dipole, it's, it's being sort of spat out. If you, you Imagine your pancake on your plate is getting spat out above and below. Yes. In these sort of huge, what, jets. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we have these huge um, jets. They're called ionization cones right. of energy coming out from the top and the bottom of the supermassive black hole. So they're not going into the disk. They're going perpendicular to that. Okay. This I is a, this is interesting for an audio podcast to it describe is. all it is. this. Uh, but it's all right. We've got our pancake as, as, uh, as reference. Yeah. Reference pancake. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like your pancake kind of exploded a little bit when you put it into the pan up into your face. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. That works. Why not? Why not? <laughs> All right. So we have, at the moment, just, just trying, to, trying to pull a few things together here. We have our pancake. That's our galaxy. We have um, the, the Magellanic Stream, which is down below the plate, down underneath. Yeah, although up and down is kind of up arbitrary and, well, yeah, at this point. At the moment. But yeah. um, we have a black hole, which is every once in a while gobbling up something and burping out these huge explosions of stuff above and below the plate, above and below the pancake. Yeah. So um, I've also seen this called like a lighthouse beam is right. another way to think about it. And it sort of ends up as a cone because you start off as a point source and it kind of spreads out the further away that you get from the black hole. Sure. Yeah, and so this belt, this sort of blast of ionizing radiation hit the Magellanic Stream, or part of it. And I'm guessing that it had a bit of an effect. Just a bit of yeah. an effect, yeah. So what we're talking about when we're talking about radiation is radiation interacts with matter, mm -hmm. right? So this is going to be high-energy radiation that changes the structure of matter that it interacts with. And so particularly what this research has been looking at is that um, this, this radiation ionized a lot of molecules that are in the gas in the Magellanic Stream. And this ionization requires quite a lot of energy. So this is how we can back calculate that energy. 
icing. Okay, so you look at the effect of the energy of the of the radiation smacking into the into the matter and going. Well, the only way that it could have done that, the only way that it could have given that that signature of ionized matter is if it was this energetic. You work it backwards and go, wow, <laughs> that's a lot of energy. Exactly. So these are um, Hubble Space Telescope's observations of in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. And they're basically looking at how much ionized stuff is there compared to how much neutral stuff. Sure. And that would give you a sense of just how big a burp the supermassive black hole did at the time. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So this is quite cool. And it's, it's the first time that I've particularly seen this black hole being referred to as like a safer for example. So a safer galaxy is um, a type of very, very active galaxy that we see out there in the universe. Um, and they have these objects very, very deep in the core, these supermassive black holes um, that we call AGN. Active galactic nuclei. I think we've talked about those in a yeah, very early episode of we this did. show. Yeah. yeah. So these are active black holes, basically, that have material going into them through conservation of energy and through the insane just physics that are going on in these supermassive black holes. They are spitting out this dipole energy. Right. And we can see that. And so are all AGN galaxies safer galaxies or is it just a particular kind of, oh, that's doing an interesting thing in this way, we'll call it a safer. Where, what's the overlap? So a safer galaxy is a type of AGN. Right. Okay. So there's other types as well, but all safers have AGNs. Right. In, okay. In them. Yep. So in the, in, the, in the Venn diagram of AGN, safer is, a, is one lobe. Yeah. If you like. Okay, yeah. cool. So safer galaxies are grand spiral galaxies like our own. They sort of look like they should be a normal spiral galaxy like our own. The only difference is if you add up all the energy that's coming from the core of a safer galaxy um, in other wavelengths, it outshines basically the entire galaxy. Oh, so they're really rather active. So the bright, the core is brighter than the whole luminosity of the entire galaxy put together. Wow. And when you, when you consider that there are hundreds of billions of stars in your average spiral galaxy, that's really quite bright indeed. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. these are particularly active yeah. is what you're saying. Exactly, mm. yeah. And it's not always clear to us, for example, how these things can change over long periods of time because we are always looking at a snapshot of the universe, Yeah. right? We can't just fast forward or rewind the universe by a few billion years to see how these galaxies have changed over time. So it's an open area of research as to basically are safer galaxies always safer mm. or do they go through safer? phases mm. for example and this research is starting to say well maybe the milky way had a safer kind of phase right because as you said a minute ago it's the first time you have have noticed people talking about our galaxy the milky way as well maybe it's kind of a safer galaxy well it, i mean surely it either is or it isn't but maybe it goes through these phases here's some evidence that at least several million years in the past it was doing something which was a very good impression of a safer galaxy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And there's, this is not the only piece of evidence. So I have to admit, this has been something that's kind of passed me by in astronomical research right. as well. Well, you can't keep up with everything, Emily. You're a busy person. <laughs> I am, but this, is, but this has got me excited. So I did go and read quite a bit about these uh, other observations. So um, coming back, this is coming back to the early 2000s, we had these two space telescopes called ROSAT and Fermi. Well, I remember them, yes. Yeah, so they were looking at X-rays and gamma rays. And uh, they found these big bubbles 
bubbles of X-rays and gamma rays that still exist um, above and below the supermassive black hole. Right, in our galaxy. In our galaxy. Yeah. And, you, and you, you see the images of these um, bubbles, and it's very striking. They look like a big lobe of radiation. Right. And X-rays are high energy. Yes. So anytime you see large amounts of X-ray energy coming from something in the sky, you know that there's something really quite serious happening there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's also been some studies uh, looking at hydrogen and how some in the Magellanic Stream, again, a particular section of the Magellanic Stream has a lot of hydrogen emission coming from it. Okay. Which again implies that you had to have some energy input in order to get the hydrogen up to a higher energy level. So in this case, it's the H-alpha line or Balmer line of hydrogen. So you have to pump it up with energy somehow. Right. And then it emits that energy back it's, to us. So it's not surprising that there's hydrogen there because there's hydrogen everywhere in it's the hydrogen universe. hydrogen everywhere. The surprising thing is that we see it, right? That, that it's got to be energized. It's got to have some kind of energy input to be bumping all those atoms up to a higher energy level so that they can then jump down to a lower energy level and give off some light. We see that only when there's energy being thrown into that system exactly right yeah so this is quite cool it's kind yeah. of like another piece in the puzzle about okay. understanding the evolution history of our milky way but given that that other evidence was there before is this new research simply confirming something or is it kind of putting all the pieces of the puzzle together and going hang on I think we know what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, the authors are quite um, cagey, I think, about this. I mean, they're sort of saying that, yes, this is all consistent. Um, but I think they're also a bit, um, you know, when you're a, a scientist, you always have that kind of little moment of doubt as well. So they, they are appreciative of the fact that, yes, these... Um, observations are all self-consistent with one another, but there are more observations needed to fully understand the deep nature of this particular emission. Right. So it's a puzzle which is gradually coming together, but this is not the final piece. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And there's actually a lot more that we can learn about the evolutionary history of the Milky Way by continuing these kinds of observations. And we're so lucky to have um, facilities such as Gaia, for example, which is doing this 3D mapping of our galaxy. Remind me about Gaia. We have talked about it before, but I've got a very short memory. Yeah, so Gaia is an ESO project where we're looking at uh, measuring the distances to billions of stars That's in our right. galaxy. Yeah, yeah, which is a big effort. It's a huge effort. And the data that are coming back from Gaia are extraordinary. Um, there's an amazing picture, which uh, we'll put in the show notes, which is uh, Gaia's picture of the Milky Way. And it looks like a photograph, mm. but it's not a photograph. It's, it's it's data saying there's a star here. It's there's a star measurements here, a star. Wow. of where all the stars are. That is awesome because you don't you don't tend to think about that, do you? You know, we get so used to seeing these amazing images of the of the night sky, and you know, you can see, for example, things like the you know the, the Hubble Deep Field and so on. Here are all these galaxies and all these points on the on the on the image. That's a galaxy, and that's a galaxy, and that's a galaxy, and that twinkly one, that's a star. You know, but those are images and. Something like Gaia, which is actually measuring and mapping out where things are in our galaxy and getting that level of detail. That's a whole other way of looking at the universe and understanding it. And that's quite an incredible accomplishment. Because it's galaxies are very complex and structured things. Yeah, I mean, just just the pure ambition of Gaia to say we're going to measure more billions of stars in our own galaxy is fantastic. And then some of the results that I've seen coming from it, we had data released too from Gaia earlier this year. They're just they're just outstanding. They really are. So okay, let's let's bring some of this together. Then we have evidence of a couple of million years ago, some ginormous explosion. 
from the supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy, spitting stuff up and down from the plane of our plane of our pancakey Milky Way, which is exceptionally thin, interesting enough, and and colliding with this Magellanic stream of of stuff of gas. And we see that in a bunch of different ways. My question to you is, like, we, you know, we, we talk about big explosions and, and how energetic things are. Just how energetic was this? Yeah, so hugely energetic. Yeah. I mean, we, we can measure this. I, I did look and see that we had a measurement in ergs, mm-hmm. which is an unusual measurement from energy. But and how, however, I mean, yep. just to give you the number, it's something like 10 to the 60. <laughs> Okay. It doesn't at that point it doesn't really it doesn't matter, matter what, what an erg is. It's a measure of energy. But when you got ten to the sixty of anything, it could be the smallest amount of energy possible. Ten to the sixty, one followed by sixty zeros, that's a lot of anything. That's Ergs a very, very large lot, lot of energy. So you gotta sit up and pay attention. That's a big exactly. explosion. And so it's interesting to think, you know, three and a half million years ago, this is not very long ago. It's not. I mean, that's like dinosaurs. We're talking tens of millions, hundreds of millions. This is this is in a time between us and dinosaurs. This is... Well, yeah, dinosaurs didn't exist three no, and a half million years no. ago. Yeah, they were, I mean, they were long gone. They've been wiped out. So we're yeah. well and truly into the mammals. We're into the primates. Some of our, you know, distant but not too distant ancestors... Uh, roaming the planet. Exactly. What would they have seen? Yeah, so early humanoids, and we, they would have to be in the southern hemisphere to be able to see the center, because this is coming from the center of the galaxy. Yep. The center of our galaxy in our night sky comes from the constellation, is in the constellation of Sagittarius. Sure. Um, in fact, that's why our Milky Way black hole is called Sagittarius A star. Right. Because yeah. when we found it, we weren't really sure what it was. But, yeah. we but it's in Sagittarius. It that thing so, in Sagittarius yeah. that's doing So Sagittarius A star is basically astronomy's way of saying it's there. We don't know what it is. Yeah. 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 Okay. So in the Southern Hemisphere, so we've got, I don't know, perhaps a bunch of, of very early sort of pre-human primates hanging around in Africa. And then, like in Australia, there would have been massive yeah. wombatty things, diprotodons wandering around looking up at the sky as they're chewing. Well, and... I think it's even it's even later than that. We've got early um, early humanoids that from, right. from uh, there isn't a name that I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's to do with Australia. Okay, um, for these for these type of people, then they're they're really not primates. They they are early humans. Right, right. They they are, do have the characteristics of human beings that okay. we have today. All so. right. So let's take that as red and and it's any amazing. sort of yeah. early early humanoid anthropologists listening to this and going, oh, seriously, guys, get your act together. Look, do write in and tell us what we should have said. Meanwhile, we're just going to assume that someone was standing there looking up. Yep. And yeah. they they would have seen basically this enormous bright jet coming from the center of the Milky Way, up and down, up and below, above and below the center of the Milky Way, and it would have been brighter than any star in the night sky. So we would have seen that. We would have seen in that in the night sky. Definitely. Wow. That um that would have been interesting. <laughs> that would yeah. Have, that would have created a few myths. Exactly. I think. Imagine imagine how you would explain that. Although I'm guessing that it didn't just sort of happen like that. Like it wouldn't have been over and over. Would it have been? Like how quickly do these things come and go? That's you know? a good question. Uh, not instantaneously. No. Um, but I don't think we have a very good idea of the time scale exactly of how long these things last. But well, it's not it's not human lifetime kind of instantaneous. But if uh, you can at least think of it in this way, if you're seeing it stretching across the sky you know, the, the it, it becoming a large-scale structure, 
you're talking light years of distance to many light years of distance. Therefore, you're talking at least many years yes. for it to grow to that size. Yes. And, uh, and honestly, you can imagine because most cultures in the world have stories, have uh, myths about the night sky, have, you know, tales of that are culturally appropriate to them. Um, lots have stories about the Milky Way. I mean, even the, the name Milky Way comes from Greek where we're talking about a ribbon of milk through mm. the sky, which is moderately odd, but, you know, that's, yeah. that's part of their, their cultural yeah. um, explanation for what they were seeing. And so if you had this enormous perpendicular jet up and below, imagine how, what stories you could, you know, yeah, that would come from that. We, we are quite good at incorporating new things and changes and so on into you know updates in our mythology so even something which which sort of perhaps slowly appeared but developed over a, over a longer period of time you know that that could have made its way into uh, into a mythology if there was someone around making mythology yeah. at the time and it, w- it would have had a meaning to yeah. some, to somebody Isn't definitely that really interesting okay all right, so, so cool. that I mean, I find that fascinating that we would have actually have seen that. Mm. Wow, would it have had? I mean, I'm kind of thinking now the the sorts of things that you said before about we, you know, ho- don't hope that there's a supernova anywhere near by anytime soon because it would just wipe us out. Would there have been any negative impacts? I mean, this is a very energetic thing, but it's a very long way away. Would it have been something that we would have had to have worried about if we had? you know, humans and satellites and mobile phones and stuff around at the time? This is, of course, the kind of calculation that we love to do. Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) What would be the worst possible case scenario? Yep. Okay. So this particular, I mean, the the way that the dipole of the black hole works is means that it's by nature pointing away from us, right? Sure. Okay. But let's just pretend. Okay. And let's pretend it pointed directly towards us. Sure. Let's, Let's assume that we are right in the path of this thing, that it tipped over, that the big black hole in the center of the galaxy tipped over and it spattered in our direction what would happen okay so first of all there's a lot of stuff between us and the center of the galaxy yes there is in fact there's so much stuff that if you go and look at the constellation of sagittarius and look towards the center of the milky way it just looks like a big black smudge yeah i mean that's the that's the weird thing about the center of the galaxy is it's really big and really bright and we have great difficulty actually seeing it Yes. Yeah, because there's lots of stuff in the way. There's lots of stars, but importantly, there's also lots of gas and dust. So those big black clouds that you see in the beautiful pictures of the Milky Way, they're clouds of dust Mm -hmm. that are in the way. Okay. So basically all this stuff does, you know, protect us Mm -hmm. from this energetic flare. Nonetheless, if we had this um, big burst come towards us, uh, then a calculation suggests that it would have about the same amount of impact as a moderate solar flare. Right. Okay. And a moderate solar flare can cause trouble here on yeah. Earth. It can cause some very nice, you know, aurora colours in the in the sky up towards the poles. But it's not hugely troubling. It's inconvenient, mm. I think, is the biggest thing. Mm. So it means it could knock out lots of our satellites, for example, GPS, internet, all that kind of stuff. Inconvenient. Yeah. Um, it's dangerous. But not, but not sort of life on Earth ending. No, no, no. It's dangerous if you're an astronaut on the Inter- mm-hmm. Inter- um, International Space Station because they don't have the protection from Earth's atmosphere. Right. Yeah. So that would have been a worry. So, you know, there are ways that we can manage those risks for astronauts. There are, we do have plans if the, you know, a huge solar flare goes off to bring astronauts back down to Earth, mm-hmm. for example. So, you know, again, inconvenient, but we can probably cope. Yeah. Yeah, so in the very, very unlikely event that the supermassive black hole suddenly changes its axis of rotation and points in our direction and burps again, 
then it's not going to be such a huge problem. Yeah. The bottom line is we've got bigger issues to worry about. Right. Well, it's always good to, to learn that even in a worst case scenario where where it's sort of you know it's a minor inconvenience rather than life ending threat from the center of the galaxy. On the other hand, as you said, it's always nice to do those worst case scenario calculations. And there's something built into the human condition, I think, Emily, that says we really want to learn that it's going to be really really bad if we know that it's unlikely to happen. I don't know. Are you are you okay yeah. with that calculation, or are you a bit disappointed? No, like I, I am? think there is a there is a dark side to human nature that always wants to know the most catastrophic ways that yeah. the world can end. That's like we like why we like disaster movies. You know, it's the same thing. I'm just imagining now how how Hollywood would uh, would take this one on. Who would star? Bruce Willis. I don't know, going up into space, putting up a big reflective sail to, to bounce the... No, I think no. I think we'd still have to nuke the, the black hole. I think we the would. <laughs> that's oh, that's our response to everything, right? Yeah. Oh, well. Listen, we need to find our way out of this particular one. If you are an anthropologist who wants to get in touch to tell us just how wrong we are in thinking about who would have been looking up at the night sky three million years ago, or if you've got any other comment or question you want to make, there are a bunch of ways that you can get in touch with us. Emily, how do people get in touch with us? We are on Twitter. We are. At SyzygyPod, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, pod. And good news is we've got basically the same handle everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Anything that you can go and do on the social medias. Well, not anything. There are a lot, actually, that we're probably not on. But if you want to try us out, we will be SyzygyPod. We're not on any dating websites at the moment. We? (laughs) No, we're definitely not. Definitely not on the. Don't don't try and find us there. But otherwise, look, on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. We have a website as well, syzygy.fm. Um, Very exciting thing coming up later in November. We are getting together with a bunch of other podcasters, not as astronomical podcasts, but podcasts from all different kinds of parts of life um, up in the centre of the galaxy of podcasting in the in the universe centre of the universe of podcasting which is Thirsk in North Yorkshire there is the world's first podcast social club being run by the same people who put together the Deershed Festival which is a which is a great north of England festival and we're taking part in that we're going to be doing a live show on the evening of Friday the 22nd of November so if you want to come along grab a ticket go to podcastsocialclub.com find yourself a ticket and come along and join us for that live show. It's going to be great fun. Looking forward to that one. But otherwise, that's pretty much it for another week. We're going to have to wrap this up and we'll catch up with you in a week's time. See you later. Catch you later. Bye. Brian Schmitz, one of his postdocs or grad students or something, the day before the Nobel Prizes were announced, said to him, like, um... I'm gonna I'm gonna prank you tonight. I'm gonna I'm gonna call you in the wee hours of the morning and pretend to be from from Sweden. So just be ready for it. And so when Brian Schmidt got the call, he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Seriously, no, no, no. This really is Sweden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course it is. Go on, fess up. No, really, it's Sweden. Oh, sorry. Hang on. <laughs> Let me get dressed. Yeah. They couldn't get him on the phone for like half a day because he I just didn't answer his phone. I mean, I guess I, I kind of feel like like surely you'd know. Like, wouldn't wouldn't you know? But the shortlist isn't isn't public. Like, people just don't know that this is coming. 
which is kind of freaky. Yeah, and one of the other guys said, oh, I, I was expecting a call, but I was expecting a call from the outcome of a big grant that I've got. Oh, right. So when they got the call, they were very excited. They thought they had this big grant. Yeah, that's great and all, but uh, I need to get off the phone now because I'm waiting for another phone call. <laughs> 